We ask you these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Skip is a great title for a sermon. I'm really excited for this one. Can I share it? Yeah. What not to say when people are suffering. From Job chapter 2, right? All right, thank you. Well, good evening. I'm so uh, thankful to be here, and I'm glad that you're here, even on a rainy Sunday night. And it's my privilege to be able to bring God's word to you tonight. Tonight, as Pastor Sean said, we're going to be in the book of Job, and I've entitled this sermon, Job's Comforters, What Not to Say to the Suffering Believer. Now, I decided on this sermon about three months ago, and even with the recent events, I decided to stick with it. And we won't be looking... Uh, on what to say to grieving believers, I mean, what we should say, that's another sermon for another day. Uh, however, if you can't wait and want to know what do you, do you say to a grieving believer, uh, there's a book that Nancy Guthrie wrote entitled, What Grieving People Wish You Knew. It was published in 2016 by Crossway, and it's an outstanding book because it really does tell you the things you shouldn't ask, the things that you should say, and you'd be surprised uh, what, you know, what uh, that really entails. So that is a book I commend you. But tonight we're going to be talking briefly about these three comforters, about what they said that was not good. Now, last July, I preached a sermon on Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 on the testing of our faith. And before we read the text for our study tonight, I need to summarize briefly what we looked at last July. We saw in that study that the Bible called Job a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a rich man, and it says at the end of uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Job was the greatest of all the people in the East. We saw in chapter 1 that after Satan had gone to and fro on the earth, the Lord asked Satan about his servant Job in chapter 1, verse 8. And he said, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan responded in verse 9 through 10 and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you, put a hedge of, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. We saw that Satan was insinuating that Job wasn't living a godly life because he believed God was worthy of his loving worship, but he was only living a godly life because he believed it would result in blessing. We must find out, said Satan, the honor of God depends upon it. And the only way to find out was to take away Job's prosperity. Satan's argument was that only when that outer skin or protective hedge is breached and the hand of God breaks in to take away what Job has, will we and can we know whether or not his godliness or his piety is genuine. So God allows Satan first to take away all of his possessions and his children. And then after a second round of discussions between the Lord and Satan, Satan is allowed to take away Job's health. And as we're told in 
chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And that is where our study for tonight is going to start. Job lying in the ashes with sores on his soul, on the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I'm going to be reading two passages this evening. First, Job 2.11 through 13, and then Job 16.1 through 5. Job 2.11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Amethite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word for him to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. Now Job 16, 1 through 5. Then Job answered and said, I have heard such many things, miserable comforters, are you all? Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips could assuage your pain. Please pray with me. Father, tonight as we look at your word, Father, we want to be good comforters. We do not want to be miserable people, or miserable comforters to our friends, but we want to be able to say the right things. Father, it's a privilege to talk to sufferers, and I pray, Father, that you would help us understand better how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, I've entitled the sermon, Job's Comforters, What Not to Say to a Suffering Believer, which means we're going to focus on what the friends said and why they said it. But before we go into the text, I want to tell a short story that illustrates the problem of what to say to a grieving, suffering believer. In 1995, while I was in the Air Force, I was stationed at Hill Air Force Base, and my wife, my late wife, Marsha, and I had gotten the news that one of our lieutenant's wives, who was expecting a baby, had died in the womb just days before she was to be born, and that our friend was in the hospital and had just delivered her deceased baby. Marsha was visibly upset with the news and wanted to go to visit this lieutenant's wife, whose name was Amy, and her husband, Rob, in the hospital. <clears throat> so we drove to the hospital, and I remember seeing the hospital in the distance. It was uh, a July day in Ogden, Utah. It was 102 degrees. And I said to Marsha, I said, are you sure you want to do this? And she said, yes. So we went up to the room, and, when, and we walked in. And as soon as we walked in, we saw the baby there in the bassinet. And Amy and Rob were in tears. The Catholic priest had just left performing the last rites on the baby. And Marcia says to Amy, how are you doing? And Amy says, how do you think I'm doing? And then the next thing that happened was they fell into each other's arms and they cried for almost about 10 minutes. And despite Marcia probably not saying the right thing at first, we had a memorable visit with them as we mourned the loss of their child with them. And 20 years later, when I ran into Rob at the Pentagon, he told me what mattered to them most 
was that we had been there to share the pain with them. And this is what we see in Job 2, 11 through 13. Job's friends have come together to show him sympathy and comfort him. The passage reads, they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with them on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was great. But the trouble comes when they open their mouth. Now the big idea I want to get across tonight is that the privilege of speaking with sufferers is one that can easily be abused. What we say to grieving people can have a profound effect on them. I want to read from the prologue to the book of Job in the 1560 Geneva Bible. It's very instructive. So we have that. In this history, is set before our eyes the example of a singular patience. For this holy man, Job, was not only extremely afflicted in outward things and in his body, but also in his mind and conscience by the sharp temptations of his wife and chief friends, which by their vehement words and subtle disputations brought him almost to despair. These friends come unto him under the pretense of consolation, and yet they tormented him more than all his affliction. Notwithstanding, he did constantly resist them and at length had good success. So what did Job's comforters say? We know it must not be good. Even though they were quiet for a week, they now have a lot to say. And the remarks start in chapter 4 after Job laments the day of his birth in chapter 3. Between, Job's, between chapters 4 through 27, Job and his three friends have a heated discussion about especially about what the cause of Job's suffering is and what he should do about it. His friends speak for nine chapters, and because of the length of this discussion, we're going to have to summarize this discussion at the 30,000-foot level, and I'm going to do this by making three summary points. Summary point one. Job wants to find out the source of his suffering and make it stop. And we have these verses that go with that. Job 6.24, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Job 7.21, why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job 9.33, if only there was a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Job 10.2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Job 13.24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? And then we have this longer version, I mean, longer passage here in Job 10.18-22. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I might find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. In this last passage, Job is asking, why don't you just kill me? Why did I have to be born and be born alive? Why could I not have been stillborn? Then at least I could be still and at peace. Just leave me alone for a moment's peace, for very soon I shall go to the land of darkness and deep shadow, 
the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. We see that Job piles up anti-creation themes. His world has been disordered by God, and he feels himself leading, heading to a land without any order. But life on earth is so terrible that he feels like he can hardly get to the chaos quickly enough. And yet, deep in his heart, his heart, the question why is addressed to God. Now, here's the good part. And in that question, that address lies hope. Whatever Job says, the fact that he says it to God and he says it with such vehemence suggests that he knows he has not reached the end. There is in Job that inner energy of faith, the mark of a real believer. Job may be wrong in his perception of God and of the reality of his situation, but he's deeply right and the direction of his turning and his journey towards God. Then we come to the second summary point. The comforters are telling Job his real problem is his sin. And not only that, that was his children's problem too. Job uh, 8, 2 through 5. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy. Job eleven thirteen through 17. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your, your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as the waters have passed away, and your life will be brighter than noonday. Its darkness will be like morning. Now, the reason the comforters say these harmful and destructive things to Job is because their system of theology drives them to this conclusion. And that conclusion is that Job's sin is the problem and needs to repent before it's too late. And we're going to look at a little here shortly about what their theology really really looks like and how they came to that, that solution. And then summary point three is Job maintains his conscience is clear and does not find his comforter's counsel helpful. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there's no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. 16.2, I've heard many things, miserable comforters are you all, shall windy, windy words have an end. Job 12.2, you people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. Job 19.2, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Job declares his innocence and he says he has done no wrong. And he has a sarcastic reply to his comforters. Oh, yes, you are so wise. You are where wisdom is at. When you die, I'm really worried there won't be any wise people left in the world. His response is prompted by, by the error in the cruelty of his friends. They torment Job and break him in pieces with words. Now, I want us to think for a moment what happened here. Clearly, Job's friends came to comfort him. And it appears that Job was glad that they were there. But how did this all go wrong? How did what started as help become anything but help. Job's comforters have really become his torturers. And as we read earlier from the Geneva Prologue, the comforters are tormenting him more than his original condition. Now, I alluded to this already, but we need to look at the theology of Job's friends. 
The theology that underlies all three friends is, is very simple and it's clear. The, the first one is, in their theology, is that God is absolutely in control. Second, God is absolutely just and fair. Now, this is where they go wrong. Three, therefore, he always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness always and soon and certainly in this life. If he were to do otherwise, he would necessarily be unjust, which is unconceivable. And number four, therefore, if I suffer, I must have sinned and I'm being punished justly for my sin. So what are we to make of this theological uh, system? We can't dismiss it out of hand. The first two parts of this formula are absolutely right. God is absolutely in control and is absolutely fair, just and fair. And it's important to note that there are many ways in which we may and do suffer as a result of our own sin. It is, it is a fact that in, that in the Garden of Eden, this theology would have been accurate before the fall. In Psalm 32, the psalmist says that when he kept his sin secret, the pressure of, of resolved guilt was unresolved guilt was destroying him physically. And only when he confessed it and turned from it did his health return. So it's obviously if I fall into sin, there will be misery as a consequence of it. If someone sins against me and I will not forgive him, and I carry resentment and become a hard and bitter person and damage my character, that's my fault. So the comforters might be right when they appeal to Job to repent. But three times in Job 1 through 2, we were told that Job was blameless. The comforters are making a big mistake. Job does not need to repent of any sin that has led to his suffering. He is not being punished for sin. For the comforters to continue to say that is a burden to Job's grief. The trouble with the comforters is that so much of what they say sounds right. It would be easy to think that the friends are doctrinally sound teachers whose fault is simply that they are pastorally insensitive. But make no mistake, it is the content, not just the tone, of what they are teaching is false. The problem is not so much what they say as what they don't say. And there are three vital truths about Job's suffering that they don't believe. Okay, you can go ahead and turn that slides off. Thanks, Sean. The first thing they don't believe is no Satan. They have no place in their thinking for Satan. We know from Job 1 and Job 2 that Satan is real and an influential person. We know that the whole tragedy of Job has its origin in heavenly arguments between the Lord and Satan. But the comforters have no place in their thinking for Satan or spiritual warfare. But the comforters have, <clears throat> we find hints that Job does believe in Satan, but the friends have no place for spiritual forces of evil. In their world, evil is purely a human phenomenon. It has no spiritual dimension. There's no spiritual battle. The second problem in the theology is there's no waiting. For Job's friends, judgment is now. The wicked are punished now. The righteous are blessed now. But the comforters are wrong. The promises of judgment, according to the scripture, are not for now. They are at the end on judgment day. For example, in Psalm 1, presents a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. But it is in the judgment that the wicked will not stand. And the judgment is usually not yet. 
The Comforter's now theology seems so tidy, but it's actually disastrous. Christopher Ashton, in his commentary, says it's like this. It's like a vending machine. You put your coins of goodness in, and out pops a can of blessing. You put some badness coins in, and out pops a can of poison. Now, the Bible does teach that we will reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. But judgment does not come immediately, because what we sow has to grow until harvest. In Jesus' the wheat, in the, Jesus's wheat and weeds parable, the wheat and the weeds grow together, and they will not be separated until the harvest, which is the last judgment. The comforters are right to believe in justice, but they are wrong to assume that it will be, it will necessarily be immediate. After Christ's coming, the world will be ordered as it was at creation, but we're not there yet. So the so the the three things they don't believe. The first one is no Satan. The other one, the second one is no waiting, and the third one, which is the most egregious, is they have no place in their theology for innocent suffering. There's no gospel, and there's no Jesus. And the idea that the righteous were ever to suffer or to perish never occurs to them. As Eliphaz asked in Job 4.7, who that was innocent has ever perished? Their theology is really bankrupt, and there's nothing there or anything they say that helps Job in his suffering. Now to Eliphaz's question, who is it that has perished that was truly innocent? And the answer to that question is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This means that the God the Father made Christ to be regarded and treated as sin, even though Christ himself never sinned. He was innocent. In becoming sin for our sake, Christ became our substitute. Christ took upon our upon himself our sin and as our substitute therefore bore the wrath of God the punishment that we deserve in our place for our sake Christ became sin for those who believe in him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God that is the gospel that is what Job's friends don't have in their theology Job had complained in 933 in Job chapter 933 if only there was a mediator between us Someone could bring us together. But thanks be to God, we now have that mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I close, I need to address Job's question in summary point one, which is Job wants to find out the source of his suffering and make it stop. He essentially wants to know why all this is happening to him. Now, when I was being examined on the presbytery floor to be licensed to preach in the James River Presbytery, I had an elder ask me this question. What did God tell Job in chapter 42 was the purpose of his suffering? And I said, he did. And that elder told me that was the right answer. In our suffering and the loss we experience, we are probably not going to know why. And if we were to know why, it probably wouldn't help. We have to be satisfied in this life with the sovereignty of God. I remember Pastor Doug about 20 years ago explained what the goal of the Christian life was. And he said it was found in Romans 8:29, which says, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal, is to be like Jesus. And God knows what we need, what he needs to do to transform us into the image of his son. And God's sovereignty is the only way some of these things in our lives are ever going to make sense. In the last chapter of Job, Job responds to God's sovereignty by saying, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Lord God rebukes Job's friends and says, my wrath is kindled against you because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And the Lord restores the fortunes of Job and Job prays for his friends. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you're a God that, that is sovereign, that you're a, a God that knows everything about us. You know what we need. You know what we don't need. In this life, Father, we have difficulty, as it says in Acts 14, 22, uh, through tribulation you enter the kingdom of God. And Father, in this life we do have tribulation and we have hurts and they're painful and sometimes we wonder, where is this coming from? But Father, you're a God that we can trust and we put our hands in your, in your, and we put our trust in you right now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our next hymn is 298.